My name is Mankan McGann, and, well, sometimes it's hard to pronounce. Mankan. So that's how to do it. Yeah. Not Manahan. Uh, Manahan is nice too. Manahan, I say in Irish, and Mankan if I'm speaking English. Right, ask me. It would be sweet if I, my first Irish word was your name. Uh, so say it again for me. So in Irish, it'd be, there's loads of different ways, but in Kerry, it'd be Manachan. Manachan. And Manachan. then in Galway, it could, you could hear Manachan. They sometimes drop out the A. But I think it's Manachan. But then in Donegal, it's exactly what you say. It's Manachan. Ah. So you've got a shape-leaping name. It exactly. bounds between shapes. That's perfect. That's great storytelling. <laughs> yeah. That's good crack. Yeah. And since we've now established that I'm Mancon, or Monaghan, or Manahan, I should let you know that this is Martin, Martin Shaw, a modern-day bard and myth-teller, who says things like, the great ancient stories of humanity are wild beasts, trembling bells of association. He's an author and Shanachi, though he probably wouldn't know how to pronounce that, and has composed courses on myth and folklore for Stanford University. He's the director of the West Country School of Myth, which he describes as a type of hedge school where people come seeking a deeper connection with the world. Having spent many years roaming the countryside, sleeping in a tent, seeking wilderness, he's now based near Dartmoor National Park. He leads students through rites of passage in the wilds, offering them an immersion in the power of myth. I often feel that we in Ireland have lost the sense of this power, and so I've been waiting for him to visit Ireland so that I could pounce on him and ask him his opinion. Oh, and you're listening to The Almanac of Ireland, an endless quest to uncover the uncommon, arcane and hopefully captivating aspects of Irish culture. Martin, can you give me a sense of mythology? Like, I know that's a ridiculously broad question, but what is mythology? Because we're so starved of it. We have now lost a sense. I, I couldn't describe it. For me, mythology is something I learned in school about the Greeks. I could come to it from a variety of angles, but I'll quote uh, a great friend of mine, Robert Bringhurst, a wonderful mythologist. He says, myth is the place where poetry and music are yet to diverge. <laughs> he said, can't get better than that. Myth is the place where poetry and music are yet to diverge. It's a kind of beautiful lie that tells a deeper truth. And it is the great fundament under which, well, above which actually most of us stand, but we have an amnesia about this extraordinary inheritance. Uh, you know, in England, everyone's gobbling ayahuasca or meditating Tibetan chants and the rest of it, which are all noble and extremely powerful traditions. But my concern is we forget the little prayer mat under our feet, which is the stories of place where we come from, the magical inebriation of a good place name, which is something you know all about. Well, tell me, what, like, uh, yeah, I mean, again, most of us are looking at road signs and we see a name in English that's on non, like, difficult to understand and then some Irish thing. But you say there's more to a place name than just a yes. place name. Here's an idea. Could you imagine that these days we have, what would you, do you have in Ireland, do you call them postcodes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A thousand, two thousand years ago, every postcode would have a deity attached to it. And you would navigate your way from Dunleary to Dingle by deity, not postcode. And you'd have to understand the particular libation of the region to pass through it unharmed. And... 
Could you imagine if everyone listening to this program drew effectively a metaphysical chalk circle of around 10 to 20 miles from where they live and they said, the mythology I'm going to draw upon uh, is going to come from here. I'm not just going to concentrate on being woke, I'm going to concentrate on dreaming. And the dreaming of a place, you would presume at this point in time that the earth had significant hurt feelings towards its human, uh, its human inhabitants. But as a long time wilderness rites of passage guide, I can bear testament to the astonishing news that it is still possible to make contact with your bush soul, something that is undomestic, that is as close to a weather pattern as prose in a book, uh, some kind of wild nature. And that is the wild nature that, in the experience of it, causes the murmurations of the heart that then call, cause us to fall back in love with the place again. And my question always is, are the words that are coming out of your mouth, are they growing corn or not? Do they grow barley or not? Because if they don't, if all they do is paralyze, then you're just issuing trance states here and there, wherever you go. But actually, a healthy functioning myth doesn't enchant, it breaks enchantments, it breaks spells. So I know that's a lot to say very early in the morning, but you asked. Whoa, yeah. So <laughs> the words that come out of your mouth, what, they flourish, they provide life, they grow things. That's a concept that I can understand. But then the myth isn't meant to, isn't, you're saying, isn't meant to nourish all that, but it breaks it or nourishes no. something else? No. Explain. The nourishing, I think, comes from when you're most conscious, most awake, most alive. But I noticed a few years ago that I would spend most of my time wandering in and out of trance states and media will do it, social media, advertising will do it, societal pressures. And so that is the state that for me, myth breaks. And interestingly, when you don't have a really healthy, functioning, rather porous mythology, like Irish mythology, very different to Greek, you get its troubled brother, nationalism. That is what will turn up when mythology is not present. Oh, that takes a while. So, because the one thing, if we think of mythology in Ireland, we just think of Cúchulain and we think of Patrick Pierce, you know, fighting in the GPO in the in honour of Cúchulain. And we think of all of those Fianna stories that really came out with the birth of our state and with this us declaring who we were and Dovalera. So mythology and Irish nationalism are so intertwined. But you're saying that's not the way it should be. Um, no, I... <laughs> that's big. Uh, no, I'm not saying that's not how it should be. But in a way, I think there's an organic health to what you're describing, that a much-needed movement towards your own culture taking its purchase requires drawing on mythological energies. But there are other places in the world and there are other times in history where you just had the sense of a nation trying to rise, but with no sense of its personal mythology. And that's, for me, when it becomes really dangerous. There's no doubt Martin's words are growing barley. My mind is suddenly alive with new understandings and new questions. We certainly need our mythology to break our enchantment with trivial things. We need to celebrate the fact that our myths are porous and malleable and thus can mould themselves away from simple nationalistic narratives. 
And then can we say that Irish mythology is unique? And first, I find it so odd to be asking you, the fact that I don't understand my own mythology, except what I was taught in school. And as you say, you are, sometimes you are a wilderness guide or a guide of consciousness through the wilderness. You're also a mythologist. You're also an author. You're also a poet. You're also a storyteller. But when I say that word storyteller, people don't understand. I've seen you, I've heard you tell a story and you're not, it's not telling. It's just so hard to convey what you do. You stand there and you speak and somehow consciousness or ancient energy or something seems to come through you so much that you, you get worried about you on stage. You think, I don't know, can this man hold it in? Because we, if we don't know you. So it's a type of storytelling that's a type, I suppose, of, of conductivity. It's like a plumbing tap comes on and gushes forth. I know. Well, I'll say a few things. Born in uh, October 24th, 1971, quarter to eight in the evening, all you astrologers. <laughs> when I was born, the night I was born, my head was twisted towards London and, you know, Thatcher and the miners' strike and all of that kind of thing. But my longing always was for the stories I read about. I grew up in a house without a television or a phone or a car and books were wealth, language was wealth. My father was and is a preacher. So you didn't just hear a story, you told a story and you brought it into your body like venison or beer or bread. You know, it nourished you for the whole winter, a story. And you expected, you expected the next time that story was told by a parent that there'd be a new kind of curvature in it. It would have changed a little bit each time it was told for the first time in a fashion. As a mythologist, you are dealing with um, the cultural history of the story, the many layers of the story, rather like an onion skin as you peel it. You have the emotional felt connection to the story, then you have what it would mean to the society in which it was originally told. But my question really, in a time when we're all kind of obsessed with origins, is, well, is the origin of a story the beginning and end of it? Or does it have, as some stories do, what you could call a nomadic agency? Why is it that there are very similar stories that you can find in Siberia than you can Mexico? Now, the great brains of the past would have said that there were two ways that could happen. One is diffusion, so as cultures bang into each other, stories get passed. And then we go to the great kind of a philosophical hole that we all fell into in the 20th century, which is Carl Jung, and he would talk about this thing, the collective unconscious. So in other words, mythologies come from the subterranean, or one of my favourite words, the chthonic, the deep chthonic in people. Certain images move through us and can't help rise like a kind of perfume, simply by the business of being a human being. And so these stories that matter turn up and they show us something about how to live, how to deal with paradox. If there's no uncertainty in a story, if there's no testing in a story, if there's no room for doubt in a story, then uh, they don't tend to get remembered. Because what we forget about the moment that we're in right now is that it always looks like the end of the world. For every generation going back and back and back, it always looks like we are outnumbered and outgunned. I'm not suggesting we don't face peril that we've never faced before, 
but we need now what we needed then, which is these great stories that have more than our own smarts in them. So what I mean by that is there's an old belief that this world primarily belongs to the dead. The Irish know all about that. There's a place in Irish culture, as well as for merriment, as well as the, the high leap of the fiddle, there's the deep grief of traditional singing. And that for me is very attracted and needed. A good myth should have porosity in it. It should have holes in it, what Blake calls pinpricks of the eternal. If you find or anyone else is listening to this, if like me, you have a melancholy temperament secretly, check that each day you're getting pinpricks of the eternal. Because the more of them you have in your day, the more tolerable it will be, and you won't necessarily have to turn to the porter at 9.30 in the morning, although a morning pint is one of the great things. <laughs> so what you seem to be saying is that there has always been a need for mythology and yes. that myth, myth isn't, isn't a cultural artefact, it's a tool, it's something we need and maybe now more than ever. Yes, yes, I, th I, think, I think I would say that. The reason I think that we need myth I think it's more than... I think mythology is more than humans just figuring out their place in the world. As soon as you say that, it's kind of anthropocentric in nature. An old idea is that the Earth itself thinks in myth, that the traditional, the traditional information that a myth should put forth is a kind of across-species gossip with us and the other plants, the weather patterns and the dream of the Earth. It sounds maybe a little inflated to say that, but that's in the old days what a storyteller was. A storyteller was not a sort of bad actor. It was a woman or a man who had gone out into nature and deeply listened and been gradually ground to dust by the power of a place. And over time, that information became distilled into a story that the community could then consume. So you have the village and you have the forest. And the stories that I'm most excited about seem to have the forest speaking through them. Rilke the poet, Rilke always says, you know, a good, every good poem you read makes you realise you have to change your life. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think myths do something like that too. So myths are communicating something more than just our own reflection back to us. You, you probably know this in the, you know, the Gaelic or the Celtic storying tradition. If you grew up with a lack of connection to place, with a lack of connection to story, if those things weren't wrapped around you like a swan feather cloak, there was a distinct possibility by the time you got as old as we are, you would fall into something very unhelpful, despair. And so part of decent parenting is to wrap a child in the goodness of a place and in the goodness of story. And when it comes to place, you don't have to be sizist. The place could be very, very small. It could be, uh, for me, when I first encountered these kind of ideas, I would go to a little park in southeast London and just give my libations to a rowan tree. If you're listening to this and you're interested in this idea, rowan trees 
are very susceptible to praise. So why don't you go out and see if you can make a rowan tree blush? You'll know you've succeeded because these little red berries come out and it's blushing. The great philosopher Gaston Bachelard has this amazing phrase. He says, the world seeks to be admired by us. The world seeks to be admired by us. So to be a myth teller is to be a praise maker. Again, if there's not barley growing in, on your tongue, if you don't have the capacity to raise up and, and acknowledge and attend to the miraculous, attend to the grace, that, that, that's, that's radical behaviour, that's political behaviour in the most wonderful sense of the word. So the stories that have stuck to me over the last quarter of a century, long before I knew what on earth was going on in my life, I had no sense of franchising or what shape it was when I was just living alone in a tent, are the ones that speak over the hedgerow to the salmon and to the hawk and to the ancestors and hundreds of thousands of flowers. Vijavahar Day, how does one process such intensity of ideas? My mind is racing to keep up with his barley sprouting tongue. Stories are how the earth thinks, and they ought to have pinpricks of eternity within them. They rise up from subterranean realms and are also nomadic. I need to find a rowan tree to sit under. I need to find a story that is worthy of engaging the attention of a salmon, a hawk, my ancestors. I need to wrap myself in it and those around me. I've never thought about these things in this way. How sad that the story lineage of our culture has been so crushed that these are now startling revelations to us where in fact they are just the common knowledge, the accepted wisdom of our grandparents. I wanted to ask Martin about our Irish mythology. There's, there is wisdom, there's information for us in Irish mythology. Mm. Is that fair? Oh, good, good. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, and this is a conversation for another day, Irish culture saved civilization from the Romans in, in any number of ways. Uh, there is something still alive in Irish myth that is connected to the Bronze Age. And the pagan imagination is so prevalent and so astonishing and so porous in Irish myth. Now, if you go to Greek, the Greek, the Greek stuff, which I adore, it's rather nailed down. Zeus represents underscore this. Hera represents this. In other words, if you're not careful, they are personifications of human impulses, lust, glory, warriorship. But Irish mythology doesn't quite behave like that, uh, which is problematic if you're trying to franchise it. But if you're an artist, if you are a poet, if you're a thinker, if you're a gardener, if you're a boat maker, uh, it's the best thing in the world because it's got space for you in and your interpretation. <laughs> Years ago, I was telling a story, I don't know if I, I mentioned this to you, uh, over there's a, a tribal group in North America called the Miwok, and it was an all-night session where the young women and men 
after a long initiation, were revealing themselves to their parents as young adults. And in the middle of the night, they called me forth to tell a, a story for them. And in the middle of all of this, an old man gets up, walks right past me and out the door of the longhouse, and it threw me. It was a fragile moment in the story, and I thought I'd offended him. But when I went out, in the early dawn light, he was standing there with a stick. And I said, as you would. I said, Grandpa, I, I really hope there was nothing in what I did that uh, was offensive to you. This would be an awful thing for me. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I'm keeping the snakes away. He said, when, when a man tells stories like that, it attracts snakes. So I'm standing here keeping guard for you as you do this ancient thing. Now, I want to live in that kind of world. I want to live in that kind of world, and I bet most of us do, that stories and language have consequence, speak across species, and things start to move again. To stay curious and invested in our own lives we need to be connected to the story of our own lives. And a great way to begin is to read fairy tales, Irish fairy tales, for example. After a quarter of a century of doing what I'm doing, there is no conversation that I can have with anybody where within 15 minutes, if they're talking to me of a grief they're going through or a complex situation, I will detect the fairy tale hanging on the wingspan of their predicament. And I just tell them the story back. They say, what do you think? And I won't give any kind of logical advice. I'll just say, once upon a time, in the middle of her life, a woman walked into a forest. And I'll tell the story of the six swans or the birth of a sheen. And that's the kind of inheritance that is available to all of us. We're, we're all incredibly wealthy if we but knew it. And my, my dream is not to walk around as the last or one of the last custodians of this kind of information. I want to help inspire 10 million other people to do their freaky version of the same thing. You've got to give it away. You've got to give it away. If you give it away, then you'll keep being filled. But if you hoard it, it inevitably becomes toxic. Yeah. In, in one way, I'm like, I'm saddened by thinking, that huge legacy we had that might be on the way out. And yet, just last week, a friend of mine in Clare, he was putting in a new septic tank and it was, you know, there was a truck coming up the driveway and saying, well, I'm not going to get around that bend there and I'm not, I can't get around there and that tree is definitely going to have to come down. And my friend said, no, that's no problem, that's no problem. I'm, but I'm, I'm just going to have to check with the fairies about that hawthorn tree first. Yeah. And your man said, oh, no, no, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, I'll get up. Don't you touch yeah. anything, don't you? Yeah. Luckily in Ireland, we sort of still have that, had that feeling. Yeah. And like on the Radio Nagelsachter Nocht on the news just yesterday, I was hearing someone was saying there was a trade union debate and they weren't getting justice. And he said, Neil Cohrim the Feina o Oileguin. We are not getting the justice of the Feina, of the Fianna, basically of the hunter gatherer tribes, as you say, the pre Iron Age, the Bronze Age tribes mm -hmm. who are in our stories. And today, to talk about how someone is getting equal justice, you have to bring those into the conversation. So we're lucky, as you sort of point out, there is an, is an awareness still in Ireland, but if we want to get into our mythology, how would you recommend that we do it? Well, first of all, you're going to need, as I said, oral storytellers. It can't be book learning entirely, although that's a place to start. I would suggest that that kind of information is waiting outside of urban areas. So although, of course, you can do wonderful work in cities, 
there should be some stretch, some acreage here and there where people can gather round a fire for two to three days and they should tell a story that lasts two to three days, of which I know many, and if I am suitably invited, with due aplomb and respect, I'll turn up and do it. Um, and are, are you joking there? Are you no, serious? no, 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 I'm absolutely serious, because I feel, I feel energised by the folks that I'm meeting in Ireland, and I think that that relationship you're describing to place to the, the fairies and the energy of a place that hasn't been completely snipped. It, it's, not a, it's not a castrated culture. It's not a eunuch culture. It has a lot of, a lot of strength and grief and flamboyance in it. Uh, so, yeah, relearn the great stories and then start to teach them by ear, not by eye. So, in other words, tell a story round a fire. I do it all the time. I say, come on Friday, leave on Sunday. I'm not telling you what I'm going to do. The reason I do that is it doesn't give them time to look on Google or to, or to sort of feel they know what it is because part of my teaching is this. We must stop telling stories what they are and we need to pay attention to what they wish to disclose to us. So Irish myth will never be successful when it's used entirely allegorically to describe a political or cultural move you want to make. That's the wrong fit. The right fit is to say we're going to meet in a wild place, uh, gather round the fire, tell stories in an old way, and then just ask this question. Where in the story do you find yourself? Never, what does it mean? What do you think it means? Just this, where do you find yourself? Because where the listener finds themselves is like an acupuncture point on their body. And 40 people have different entry points to the story. If you just ask them to name the place, not what the place represents or what it is, stick with the image, as the uh, psychologist James Hillman used to say, suddenly you'll be in the presence of living myth, not moribund myth, not myth as lecture, but as a living thing that is talking to us directly about our lives right now. So go to the wild, tell stories for a long time, and then don't tell the story what they are. Just ask, where do you find yourself in it? Then go and do the book reading. Then do the cultural study. If the story is the cattle raid of Cooley, find out about cattle. You may need to take up fencing if you want to tell it. Bring it into an embodied experience. But first of all, hear it in the old way. Because we have, with all our technology, we've become so hypnotised by the space a foot and a half in front of our head. We have a very... I'm always speaking to the old part of human beings. Uh, even young people, who everybody seems to have given up on with technology, they have an ancientness in them. You know, I, I've often talked about this flesh memory, skin memory and bone memory. Skin memory is the stuff on the CV. Flesh memory is the stuff you've lived through, the divorces, the heartache. Bone memory, which is what we so deeply need right now, is the stuff that touches us that is deeper than the narrative of our own lives. To give you an example of that, they do experiments with chicks in laboratories 
and they put the shadow of a dove over the chick and it doesn't react. But they put the shadow of a hawk over the chick and it goes into spasm. That's the bone memory of the chick. We have bone memory. We have caribou dust. We have elk bone. You know, there are, as you know from Irish myth, there are different islands, not one place. It's three. There are different gradations of consciousness. You'll experience three different types of island depending where your imagination is at. Moriarty always used to say, when I leave my door in the morning, I need to get my passport out because I'm entering into another gradation of the consciousness of Ireland. Our, our ancestors are the Chuata de Danan and the, and the Fivorig, and uh, those are our people. We're not entirely human. <laughs> Sign me up. Good God, a chrysan glory. Sign me up now. We need to revive our stories. I want our stories to be so potent and cathartic that they lure the snakes back again to Ireland, undoing all of St. Patrick's misguided goodness. You've been listening to The Almanac of Ireland with me, Mancon McGann. The series is partly funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. It's produced by Colette Kinsella and it's a red hair media production for RT Radio. All the music in the series is by Blue Dot Sessions. 